you'd open your Bible with me this morning to Psalm 78. We are, as you know, making our way through the Psalms uh, in the evenings, but uh, we finished up with the book of Ephesians, and we're up to Psalm 78, and it's it's an important message, and I'm glad everyone is here uh, to participate in. Psalm 78, uh, it's a long psalm, and uh, we're going to read the entire psalm because it's all God's Word, and we want to get Uh, prominence to God's Word. Uh, Just let me lay it out a little bit for you so you understand what we're reading as we go through. In the first uh, eight verses, um, the writer is appealing particularly to um, his audience, and his audience is the the southern two tribes of Judah. If you remember a little bit about your Old Testament history, there were 12 tribes of Jacob. Um, They went into the land of Canaan, and uh, David became their great king, ruled over them. But after a while, the the nation was split in two, the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes. The northern tribes just increasingly wandered, 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 and finally they were taken away into captivity and never heard from again. And that's the story that's going to be told in Psalm 78. It's a psalm about Israel's uh, unbelief, their backsliding, and, and, and then particularly as it took place in the northern uh, ten tribes, and, the, and God rejected them. But he's appealing to the people of Judah, uh, think about this dark story, and pay attention to what God did there, and the failure of, of Israel, and, and they're being rejected. And then remember God's mercy to us. It closes with... Um, a reminder of God's mercy to Judah, that, that he gave uh, from Judah, King David, to shepherd them, and that God is still shepherding them. And in that context, God has a commission for the people of Judah, particularly for the fathers, to see that the faith is being passed down from generation to generation, unlike what happened in Israel, that the faith be passed down among God's people in Judah. So that's the, the, the context of the psalm. Let's now read it together. Psalm 78, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the, uh, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, which he appointed and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God." And then he begins the story of the Ephraimites, which stands for the northern ten tribes. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the water stand like a heap, In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. And so he's going to recount that the unbelief of Israel has been there from the beginning. 
They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their cravings, while the food was still in their mouth, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him and they repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so they could not drink of their streams. This is now the plagues of Egypt. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. But turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword. Their widows made no lamentation. 
Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. He put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph, did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from among the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh, God in heaven, uh, we read this sad litany of the unbelief of your people and yet the faithfulness of God and, and then the call that you give to us today. And so I pray you give his ears to hear it and to, Lord, understand what an amazing thing it is to be the children of God, the people of his pasture. What a great privilege that we have uh, to pass on uh, the knowledge of God to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would see you doing that here in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. The title for my message this morning is God's Plan to Save Your Great-Grandchildren. And I take that from uh, chapter, uh, from verse 5 in uh, Psalm 78, where uh, God commands fathers to teach their children so that the next generation might know, so that they can pass it on to their children, the next generation, the great-grandkids, so that the great-grandkids should set their hope in God. Uh, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to hear that God has a plan to save my grandkids. Not my, just my grandkids, my great-grandkids. And their, and their uh, children after them, my great-great-grandkids, and, and on and on until Jesus comes. God has a plan for that. It's a marvelous expression of the covenant kindness and love of God. That God puts people intentionally into families and into family lines. Calvin says one of God's greatest mercies is that he cares not only for us, but for our children after us. Well, how much more magnificent the mercy of God that he should care not only for our children, but our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And that God's mercy to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren should be a powerful motivation for us to listen to what God has to say. If if, if God has a passion to save our great-grandkids... Uh, shouldn't we all the more share that passion? Uh, there's another factor that should make us uh, eager to hear what God has to say, because, and, and that other factor would be we have the command of God and the reality of the world in which we live. We live in an age, friends, that is in aggressively seeking to destroy the faith of our kids. Those of you who are 40 years and older, and, and those, of course, just rough numbers, but you grew up in a, in a culture that was still functioning with gen- general Judeo-Christian concepts. 80% of Americans said they believed in God. Uh, the influence of a Judeo-Christian worldview still permeated society. Uh, you, you would hear references to things like grace and sin and forgiveness and hell and, 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 and God and truth and the commandments. Uh, those are categories that people understood. And, and sort of there were shared values as a community. So, so we sort of understood in our culture that, that marriage and family should be protected, honored. Uh, we, we understood that children should be protected. Children, children should be nurtured. And, um, and that government ought to do what it can do to encourage the institution's 
of family and marriage and faith. And friends, it's, it has changed. We don't live in that kind of culture anymore. We, we live in a, a, a profoundly pagan culture, a God-denying culture, a self-exalting culture that glorifies uh, in perversion in ways that we could not have imagined 40 years ago. 40 years ago, um, no one would have imagined that women would go online and boast about murdering their unborn children. And now it happens routinely. 20 years ago, no one could have imagined that doctors would willfully mutilate the bodies of perfectly healthy children in a fantasy pursuit of transgendered happiness. You would not have believed it if someone had told you that 20 years ago. Probably wouldn't have believed it 10 years ago, and now it's, it's the norm. It's common. And, and, and you're the heretic if you protest. And I'm not, I'm not here arguing for the good old days. The good old days were, were shot through with sin um, as well. But, but what I do think it's important for us to realize is that something new is happening, culturally speaking. And it's essential that parents in particular wake up to the fact that, that the culture in which we live is uniquely and purposefully designed to destroy the faith of your children. There are dangers abounding, dangers that I did not face raising my kids. And we need to recognize that the devil also has a plan for your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And he's actively at work in aggressive ways to see that your children and your grandchildren, that their faith never comes into bloom and that they waste their life on passing dead things and then spend eternity in hell. That's the devil's plan for your children and for your descendants. And so Psalm 78 is a psalm about this spiritual battle for the souls of children, God's children, covenant children. I'm going to begin, uh, as we look at the psalm, by just noting the story of Israel's failure, verses 9 and following. The majority of the psalm is spent on recounting um, Israel's failure to stand in the, in the spiritual battle of their day. Verse 9, the Ephraimites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. It's not just physical battle that's, that's mentioned, but it's um, the battles of Israel were spiritual battles. The tribe of Ephraim stands for the northern tribes uh, as a whole. And the tragedy of Ephraim is that they were armed. God had equipped them with everything they needed to stand in their day. To stand for the cause of God. To stand as the people of God against the, the enemies all around them. They were equipped. They were armed for battle. But they turned back. They gave into idolatry, to compromise. They became just like the world around them. They did not pursue God's cause in the world. Verse 10, they did not keep God's covenant. They refused to walk according to His law. They didn't want to love God or obey Him. They didn't want to be identified as His people. Well, what happened to them? Verse 11, we're told they forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. 
All the saving grace that God had revealed to Israel in bringing them out of Egypt and and claiming them as his own possession, bringing them out of the bondage and death of Egypt, making them his own people, it was just all gone. They forgot about it. They didn't remember how God led them through the sea and how God provided water in the wilderness from a rock. And most of the psalm is in the story of this, is the story of this tragic unbelief and God's patience in the face of it. Verse 17, they sinned against him more and more, rebelling against the Most High God. They tested God in their heart. They spoke against God. And God was angry, and yet God responded, and he gave them, right? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? So God gave them the bread of angels and meat that fell like dust. God showed that he has the power to provide for his people. And yet, in spite of all this, they still sinned, verse 32. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. They didn't repent. They didn't take into it, it just didn't resonate with them that this, this God is actually the living God, and all the gods of the nations around us are just worthless idols. It didn't resonate with them. They liked the way the world was going, they liked the way the world lived. They liked having access to their little, their little gods and goddesses. You can bring them into the house and, and you can set them up over here and, and uh, you can make them do things for you. <coughs> and so the repeated pattern of the psalm is God being gracious, being patient, but they don't remember. Verse 40, they did not remember his power on the day when he redeemed them from the foe. Verse 56, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, did not keep his testimonies. And so God finally rejected them, verse 59 and following. He gave them over to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came and killed their young men and dragged the people into captivity, and they never returned. The northern ten tribes were lost completely for all of history. God rejected them. And then in sharp contrast, with God's rejection of Ephraim, the northern ten tribes were told of God's loving choice of Judah. Choice of Judah is manifested in God's uh, choosing David, great King David, the, the, the shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah, the one who, who represents uh, God's redemption and God's salvation, God's power as Israel's king. David became the shepherd of God's people. David led them to peace. And the point of the psalm, of course, is Um, As the writer is writing to the remaining tribes, the two tribes of Judah, the point is, pay attention. Don't don't forget what happened to your cousins in the north. They forgot about God's saving power and grace. They, They didn't pass on the faith to their children. They rebelled against God, and they were forever lost. But we We are still God's people. God has chosen us. God has uh, promises to bless us. So listen up, Judah. Don't forget the Lord your God. And don't let your children forget. And that's why he begins as he does in verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Pay attention. I'm going, to, I'm going to open my mouth in parables and utter dark sayings from of old, things that, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And, and, and um, he's, he's just reminding them, I'm not going to tell you something new. This story is a story you've heard before, and the reason you've heard it is because your fathers, our fathers have told this story to us. 
The faith is being passed down here in Judah. And Asaph commits his generation to to carrying out that same task and mission. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders He has done. We're not going to hide the great works of God by just not talking about them. We're not going to let our our children forget the saving works of God, the wonders of God. We're We're going to tell them all the great things that God has done. And I just want you to notice that the story that that they're going to tell their kids is a gospel story. It's a story of God's glorious deeds. It's a reference to His his redemption of Israel out of Egypt. It's it's a story of, of God's triumph over their enemies, God's miraculous provision uh, for them in the wilderness and giving them this land to be their own where they dwell in His presence. Uh, That's the gospel story of the Old Testament. It's the shadow that points to the the story of the cross. That story is the quintessential evidence of of the greatness of God and the grace of God, the goodness of God. And and the, uh, the writer says, and we're committed to telling that story to our kids. We do not let want them to forget what God is like and what God has done. And then in the context of that great story of redemption, verse 5, the, the writer goes on to say, we're going we're gonna to talk to them about the testimonies and laws of God. You see, God brought Israel out of bondage, and He brought them to Mount Sinai, and He says, I've rescued you, now... This is how you are to live as my people. And so verse 5, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Uh, the, the law of, uh, that's referenced here doesn't just stand for the Ten Commandments. It stands for the revealed and written word of God in general, the, particularly the, the, the revelation that God gave to Moses. So um, the, the law of God stands often in the Bible for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In other words, the writer is saying that God established, God gave His people a scripture, a written record of what He had accomplished, of all that He had promised, all that He he, uh, had accomplished for Israel, a written word from God, and in that written word was the reality of God and and then how they are to live as His people. We should marvel at the reality, the fact of a Bible that we have the written Word of God in our hands. There's nothing like the Bible in the entire world. This is not written just by men, right? Above all, you must understand that no Scripture has its origin from the will of man. But men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The, God has given, uh, He's spoken into this fallen, spiritually dark world He's spoken the, the light and the life of his, of his Word, and we have it. And, and, and so God gives His Word, and with that Word, God gives a command. He establishes testimonies and His laws, verse 5, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children. And so we have what parents are called to do. God commands parents to teach this to their children. God's passion, friends, is multi-generational 
faith. His desire is not just that men and women be saved. That's clearly his desire. That's the gospel mission. But his desire is that those men and women then would pass that faith on to their children so that as their children grow up, they pass it on to their children and so on through the generations. That's a theme that you find throughout Scripture. God, God has a passion for your descendants. Deuteronomy 32, I'll just read a few. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. New Testament, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God is zealous for your faith, and he's zealous for the faith of your children and your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. The faith is meant to be passed along. And it's a sincere faith. It's not a religious tradition that God is interested in. Notice verse 7. We're, we're told what, what faith God is looking for. That they should set their hope in God. So he wants our, our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids to have a, a functioning confidence in God, that uh, they should not forget the works of God. So they, they remember who they are and, and what God has accomplished for them, and that they should keep His commands. So God is looking for authentic faith and obedience from our great-grandkids, the real thing. He's not asked us to pass down our religion or our, our traditions or just our practices, but, but is desiring a robust, authentic, sincere Faith in God from our great-grandkids as they set their hope in Him. That's God's desire for your descendants. Now, how is that going to happen? How are we going to do this? Well, do note, I think it's, it's worth paying attention that in the Bible, uh, it says fathers. Over and over, it says fathers. Fathers take the lead. Doesn't mean that everyone else is excluded. We all have a ta calling in this. Uh, moms, obviously. Uh, grandpa and grandma, clearly. Uh, but as a family of God, Sunday school teachers, and, and, and just as, as members of the family, we're all, we're all the called to pass on the faith to the next generation. But, but when Scripture talks about that happening, it talks about fathers. Sociological studies show that that's actually how it works. That, that children are keen off dad when it comes to spiritual things. It doesn't mean that if you're a single mom, you're stuck. You're not stuck at all. You have the, you have the, the mighty word of God, and, and his church history is littered with great uh, saints who've testified to the power of their mother's witness and her prayers. So don't despair at all. But, but how are we going to do this? Well, fathers take the lead, and I just have a few things from the... Word of God, to encourage us with. Fun, one, what do we do? Well, we, we need to tell the gospel story. We, the story that, we, that we're called to pass on to our kids is not the Ten Commandments. Um, the, the, the calling that God has given to us is not to make our children behave. It's not to make them good kids. They're not good kids. And you don't have the power to make them good kids. The calling that you have is to 
make your children see, help your children, not make them, help your children see the greatness of God and the saving work of God. Your, your calling is to, is to marvel at the glory of God in your own life and you call your children and say, son, do you see? Daughter, do you understand? This is who he is. This is what he's like. This is what he's done in Jesus Christ for sinners like me and for sinners like you. So make the story, make the religious story in your home the gospel story. And you stand there and you marvel at the greatness of God and you tremble at the holiness of God and you worship because of the truth of God. And you praise Him because of His love and His grace. And then you call your children to come and join you. That's the call. Make the story in your home God's amazing daily grace and His mercy to you and to, the, to your family and to sinners all in Jesus Christ. That's the first and most important thing. But following right on the heel of that, then, is that we're to live in the gospel faith. You see, the gospel story is not going to be compelling to our children unless it, if they don't see it making any difference in our life. There's a new study put out uh, two years ago by um, sociologist, sociologist Christian Smith. He's written some great stuff. He's got a new book out, Handing Down the Faith, How Parents Pass Their Religion On to the Next Generation. The study points out two things. First of all, that parents are the single most influential factor determining the faith of their children. Quote, uh, parents define for their children the role that religious faith and practice ought to play in life, whether important or not, which most children roughly adopt. Again, study after study shows that that's the case. Now, it's not a, it's not a hard rule. It's the general rule. There are exceptions. But that's the first thing, that parents have the most influential role to play. The second, the faith is this, the second uh, principle. The faith which parents are passing down is the faith they're actually living out day to day. So it, it, they point out that the, it, it's important that we speak, but our kids aren't just listening to what we say, they're watching what we do. And that our children's faith is being molded by the way that we treasure God's word or not. And, and, and the way that we live our life by prayer or not. And the way that we participate in the work and worship of the church or not. Smith writes, parents set a glass ceiling of religious commitment above which their children rarely rise. Now that's just him doing his homework and studying what, uh, how faith gets passed on from generations. It's not a hard and fast rule. I'm thankful to say, I think my kids are, are above, beyond me where I was at their age by the grace of God. And I know many of you would say exactly the same thing. Praise God that's true. God isn't bound by our limitations, amen? But God is a calling for us as parents. The number one thing that we can do for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren is to take our walk with God, our walk with Christ, our walk in the church seriously. I think if I, if I, if I look back and how the faith got passed down from Grandpa Van Dyke to his 11 kids to his 71 grandkids, and I have no idea how many great-grandkids and, and then after that. 
How did the faith get passed down? I think the, 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 the one thing that stands out to me is they were serious. They weren't always right. weren't always godly. But they were serious about the things of God. They were serious about the Word of God. They were serious about the church. And that got passed down. I, I just, I, I want to... I want to encourage parents today. This sermon could land like a ton of bricks, and you, we could just walk out thinking, man, we're, we're blowing it. Well, that's the last thing I, I would want you to hear. It's not why the, the author is writing in Psalm 78. He's writing to, under, with, the, with, the, with the confidence that the people he's writing to have the same zeal. We will pass this on to our children. We are not going to hide this. One of the things I love about uh, the body of Christ here is the seriousness that I see parents uh, exercising their parental calling. The fact that it matters to you that, that God has given you children and, and that you've taken a, a, a vow before the Lord to raise them in the nurture of the Lord. And so I love the seriousness that I see. I want to encourage you in every way. I love seeing um, moms and dads taking children to church. I love seeing um, you do a house visit and you hear about the family devotions that are taking place and the way the parents are praying for their children. Even the, the parents that are praying for wandering children, that's exactly what we're called to do. That's being serious about the things of God, and I want to encourage you in every way, keep, keep going. Be encouraged. You see, one of the things that uh, the study points out is that your work is not in vain. Um, Gene Veith wrote a review of this book, and he, and he says this, he says, if God uses our life in spite of ourselves, right, with all of our flaws, but a life of intentional striving after Christ, of, of, of normal faith where we're seeking the things of God, He uses that in the life of our children. He says this, if, if transmitting the faith is part of the parent's vocation, this also means that God Himself is at work in and through what parents do. God is at work. You see, friends, we can't save our kids. Not a single person here can. But God can. And God chooses to do that saving work through us, through our witness, in our speech, in our life, even through our failures. You see, our children need to know that dad and mom need Jesus too. If your children don't think you need Jesus, why would they think they need him? And so we, and so we live in front of our children with honesty, with, with just the boys and girls, mom and dad's sin. But we have a sufficient Savior for our sin, and, and he's able to save you. So we can have the confidence as we live in that faith, God uses that lifestyle to give faith miraculously to our children. He doesn't promise that if we do it just right, right, our children will grow up to be committed followers of Christ. That promise doesn't exist in the Bible. Don't, parents, if your children are not walking with the Lord today, don't beat yourself up with, with, with something that's not in Scripture. But we do have warrants for expectation, friends. Whether our children are now walking with the Lord or not, we have warrant for expectancy. That, that God has purpose this plan. 
And God promises to bless his means of grace. And so you pray with your children. You open the Bible and you bring them to church. Um, God uses means of grace to create faith in the lives of his children. God promises to answer our prayers. You're not speaking to a reluctant God as you pour out your heart to, to your father and, and, and beg for the souls of your children. You're speaking to a father who has intended this, who desires that your children be saved. These children are his covenant children, right? As we pray for our children. We're praying for children that God has intentionally placed in our homes and that we know God has a desire to save. And even if, if, if now they're rebelling and now they're turning back, now they're not hearing, Smith points out in his, in his study that, that now is not the end of the story. It's amazing how often children wake up after they've reached adulthood. And the things that they were taught as children now come to mind in the life of their parents. Suddenly, the, the, the faith of their parents takes traction. It was meaningful to them. It can be meaningful to me. And the Savior that I learned about when I was five years old, that Savior is sufficient to save me. Now maybe I'm 30, 40, or even 50 years old. Friends, God is faithful. But we have a task to do. But we do that task, friends, in light of the gospel. There, you see, there's a gospel for parents too. Aren't you glad to know that? There's a gospel for moms and dads who blow it. And every single one of us has blown it. No, no one has perfected the art of Christian parenting. And so don't let the devil, I just don't let the devil accuse you today. Don't let, don't let the devil beat you up. Let, let, hear the gospel for yourself. Jesus knows. He's not relying on us. He's just called us. But take your struggles to him. Maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed by the responsibility that he's laid on you. Maybe you're, you're brokenhearted because uh, you have a child or children who, who have no concern for God. And they're pretty clear about that. And your heart is breaking because you love them so dearly and, and your, your heart's deepest desire is that they should know Jesus Christ. There's a gospel for hurting parents. There's a gospel for struggling parents. Take it to Jesus. He knows. Remember, he is the great shepherd of the sheep. The Lord who saved us in spite of all our rebellion and sin is able to save our children. And so take your burdens to him. Take your children to him and your grandchildren. And know that he's able to strengthen you. He knows how to find lost sheep. He knows how to bring his children home. But let's commit ourselves as parents to trust him and to do what he's called us to do. Let's do all that we know how to do. To stand in this evil day and to raise children who know the Lord. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, I... I praise you for your great plan of salvation in, in Christ and, and for your plan of seeing that salvation flow from generation to generation as moms and dads worship Christ and speak of Christ and point their children to Christ. And that, Lord, you, you use that. And so many of us can testify that we came to faith in Jesus just that way. 
And others of us, Lord, have come to faith uh, out of a, an unconverted or unbelieving background. Our parents don't know the Lord even today, and yet you were gracious to us, and you've called us now to step into this wonderful stream of generational faith as we pass on the children, the faith to our children and our grandchildren. And Father, I, I pray that you encourage the parents in this room, whether their children are young or, or grown, that you would encourage us all that it is your power that makes this happen. It's your grace that saves. But you use our, our witness and our, our weak and, and feeble lives as parents to that end. And so give us joy in that. And Lord, I, I just pray for parents who are not serious this morning about spiritual things. I pray, Lord, that they would, they would understand the devastation or, or, or just the way that they're failing their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And that, Lord, I, I pray that a, a fear that the generations to come might stand and testify against them because of their foolishness and disobedience. Lord, I just pray that, that you would give them a repentant heart and that parents would get serious, parents who are not serious would become serious about the things of God and the souls of their children. Lord, and, and, and for those who are deeply desiring to honor you and yet feel their weakness so profoundly, Lord, please encourage us and that as we walk in faith and obedience, as we, as we confess our sin and acknowledge our blindness and grieve our failures, Jesus, I, I, I pray that we would have the confidence that your love hasn't waned and that your, your purposes have not been thwarted and that as we live in the faith of the gospel, believing that, Jesus, you are sufficient for our sin, Lord, that that's precisely where the gospel is communicated to our kids. And so I, I pray you'd give us confidence for those who are struggling and and feeling overwhelmed. I pray, Lord, for parents with, particularly whose children are not walking with the Lord. And Father, you know the, the, the heartache of that. I pray, first of all, Lord, that you would give rebellious children repentant hearts. They've known the story. They know they're grieving their parents' hearts. And yet, Lord, it, it hasn't softened them. It hasn't brought them to Jesus. And I, and I pray, Jesus, that, that, you would just, you, that you would save our, our wandering children. We love them so much. And whether they, again, be young or old, Jesus, would you be at work and, and draw them home? You are the great shepherd of the sheep. We depend upon you. Lord, I, I just pray that your church would stand in this evil day. We've been equipped. We've been armed. You've given us everything we need. May we stand and not turn back. And Father, I, I just pray for our kids. I pray for our grandkids and for the children and the grandchildren that will come after them. That, Lord Jesus, we would have the joy of seeing them stand with us on that great final day of Jesus Christ. Protect them in this evil day. Give them faith. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond and sing together from Psalm 78. Let children hear the mighty deeds which God performed of old. Let's stand together and sing.
blessing of the Lord. The Lord, your God, bless you and keep you. The Lord, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.